and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. Before we get started, I wanted to give an unsponsored shout out to a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, who's a great guy and a talented writer himself, Clint Williams. Clint's a final draft Big Break winner and Austin semifinalist. He's always been such a great supporter of the podcast for a really long time. So I just wanted to give Clint a little free, unsolicited promotion here. Check out his scripts on the Blacklist website or just hit him up at ClintW3 on Twitter. Uh, that's it. That's just a thank you to Clint. And uh, okay, on with the show. Our guest today is a lit manager and producer who has worked at Village Roadshow, Appian Way, and now runs management and production company Bellevue Production with a strong roster of writer-director clients and various projects in development and production all over town. Uh, too many of which to list in this intro, but we'll talk about some of them. Welcome back, my good buddy, John Zalzerny. Thanks Thank for coming you. back Thank on, John. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Always a, always a highlight. Um, before we get started, if you haven't listened to John's previous podcasts, you definitely should. Uh, he's, dished out, he's dished out excuse me, so much great information, not only on representation, but on writing, the industry, and just being a better writer in general. Um, so I highly recommend you taking a listen because there's, there's some gems in there. Uh, you can find them on our website, scriptsandscribes.com, as mentioned before. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, go check those ones out as well. Um, so thanks for having us back. It's always great to talk to you, always John. Always a pleasure. Always a highlight. We're the new Bellevue offices, mm-hmm. which we won't give out the address to no so people don't, people don't show up. That was why I moved. Oh, there's other reasons we moved. We have a nice bigger office now. But yeah, people were showing up, which I think we talked about in a previous podcast. But I would put that as the number one thing not to do. There, right. There's your tip of the day. Don't show up at unsolicited people's offices. Right. That's that's a no-no. Manager, but you're also a producer, mm-hmm. which we can get into uh, the whole people conversation. People are always people. It's weird. People are always really, you know, what is the difference? What's right. the differentiation? What's, and everyone has their own rules on that. But yeah, it is something that people ask a lot about. So we can definitely get into that. Yeah. Um, but before we get into the whole producer versus manager discussion, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about what you have going on now. I know mm-hmm. Eli at Netflix. Yeah, Eli just came, came out on Netflix. Everybody watch it. Long tail streaming. You yeah. Know? Um, Infinite, going. Paramount. Yeah, so which we, a- we actually have you introduced me to Ian Ian mm-hmm. Shore, the writer of Infinite, longtime mm-hmm. friend and client of yours, mm-hmm. who now has shot a, a big, gigantic yeah. epic, which we discussed in one of the previous podcasts. So go listen to him. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about what's going on with Infinite right now. Absolutely, it is they wrapped shooting. Uh, we are in post production, uh, and it comes out uh, August seventh of this year, so twenty twenty twenty. Great. So, yeah, really, really exciting. It looks amazing. I'm incredibly excited about it. I mean, you know, it's one of those crazy things. You know, Ian and I were on set and we're just like, you know, in London and we're just like, holy, holy crap. You know, this is, you know, came from, you know, a a small self-published book um, that was great, but didn't have a huge readership that um, a really talented guy, uh, Rafi Krone, uh, brought to me um, knowing he thought it'd be great for Ian Shore um and ian had always loved the concept and really sparked to it and you know worked with the author of that eric uh ended up optioning it from him um just to recap the story yeah and then we worked on it ian and i worked on it uh alongside rafi in terms of developing spec and that took a little while you know because it it is a very complex world and, and the book is great but you know um very um philosophical 
and insular um and the movie needed a little bit more um the movie's an action movie so right. um and so eric had some great great stuff in there but it was also a bit of expanding the universe and, and things like that and so ian and, and myself and rafi worked on that and obviously ian doing the line share because he's the writer um and we sold it to paramount um really quickly in uh in 2017 um and he was on the blacklist that year which is great and then you know, partnered up with Lorenzo Bonaventura and Mark Varadian at his at Lorenzo's company, uh, and then yeah, and then you know Lorenzo had a long relationship with Antoine Fuqua. Mm-hmm. Um, got it to Antoine. Antoine loved it. Um, we were originally working with Chris Evans, uh, who wasn't able to do it, so eventually moved on to Mark. Uh, got it to Mark Wahlberg, who really resonated with it. Um, and there was a long history there. Mark and Antoine had done Shooter together. Lackey as, as well as Lorenzo. Lorenzo produced that. And Lorenzo had done Deepwater Horizon and two Transformers movies with Mark. So there's a long kind of history there. Um, and then, yeah, it went into production last year and, and it's coming out this year. And it's, it honestly, from selling a spec to having it come out in you know, 2020, that may, through three, two and a half years, may sound long to people. But you right. and I know that's, that's, and it's a very expensive movie. It's, you know, I won't say the exact budget number, but it is. Um, it's big and, and, you know, I think people are going to be really excited about it. And, you know, uh, technically it's not original, you know, IP, um, in the sense of obviously it's based on Eric's book, but you know, a lot of things that get made, especially at that budget level tend to be toys or comic book TV show reboots or comics. And I think this was a case where, yes, it was a piece of IP, but, you know, as good as the book was, I don't think it didn't have a, it wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey. It wasn't Harry Potter. It got made because I think it's an amazing concept down its root. And so it's uh, it's not original IP, but it, it, it's as close as it as you're kind of going to get to some degree. It's pretty damn close. Right. Um, and so it's just been really, really cool and rewarding. And since then, um, uh, kind of an, another kind of interesting story, I had um, been introduced to uh a great script a kind of a concept for a script written by um by uh by a young producer uh sorry the the concept it was interesting to me by a young producer um and then uh and then you know it was a screenplay written by a really talented writer called laurie ashbourne um ended up optioning that script um but kind of wanted to take it in a different direction worked with a client of mine, Kathy Charles, to flesh it out, who um, ended up not being able to write the script. And so um, Ian Shore, who also wrote Infinite, stepped in with a writer that he works with a lot, a co-writer called Peter Gamble. who They also wrote a movie called Office Uprising together. They go back a long ways. They're really talented kind of writing partners and, and really close friends. And even when they're writing separately, kind of bounce ideas off each other. And Peter's also a client of mine. Um, and so they stepped in, wrote the script, and we took that out in, I want to say either late September, or early October, sold within a couple of days. Again, kind of similarly to Infinite. Um, and that one is, we just got an amazing director on that, Gigi Saul Guerrero. We're in pre-production and, uh, you know, hope, looking to go to production relatively soon. And so it's one of those kind of crazy things. It's been a crazy, it's a great time to talk to Ian because, you know, um, Infinite was a massive budget. Uh, 1031, which is the thing we just sold, is not going to be a huge budget because it's a relatively contained horror film. But, you know, both are getting made by big studios. This is getting made by Orion, the genre arm of MGM. Um, so two very different experiences, I would say. Um, but, you know, both cases where, you know, Ian was involved in a script, you know, wrote it or co-wrote it, and it's it's getting made within a relatively quick time span. Um, you know, it's funny, I, was, I had dinner with a, a friend of mine who's an executive 
last night and he said, you know, in this marketplace, it feels like he was equating it to the housing market mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. And he was saying things either sell really fast, like within a week or so, or they kind of linger. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of, kind of true for this, for the, you know, the feature spec screenplay market where, you know, it, it feels like it, either people are immediately into it or, you know, it's, it's impossible or very difficult to get interest, which doesn't right. mean it can't happen over a longer term of time, but uh, it is one of those things where it is kind of, it feels like the market is not that, I feel like that market was always kind of there, but it's really, it's on steroids now. Right. Um, where people, either the concept or the project or the uh, people involved in it are like immediate yeses, or it's a much harder path to yes. So it's kind of been interesting with both those projects that they were relatively quick yeses, um, within very different genres and very different budget levels. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I saw, I want to say a tweet, which obviously it's 50-50 chance mm. if it's actually true, but I saw <clears throat> a tweet that said the spec market in 2019 was sort of depressing because they saw, I don't know where they got the chart and the number from, from some publication, that there were only about 80 spec sales mm -hmm. last year in 2019. I believe that. Uh, what does the spec market look like on your end? The other thing I would say about that number, just before we even get into yeah. it, is that number is also the number of scripts that were reported sold. Sure. Sometimes things are sold that didn't sell. Some things, sometimes things are sell and no one ever reports them. There are some studios that are not interested in putting out a press release when they buy something because they don't want to alert the competition to what's going on. You know, these are not... Um, government companies they have no right uh, they don't have to like tell everyone what's going on you know look at netflix they're not releasing their viewership numbers, numbers right. you know like so there's no obligation per se there's no moral obligation certainly uh to to release those things so scripts do sell that maybe you just don't necessarily hear about and mm -hmm. i've certainly been involved in that where something has been sold or optioned and nobody ever heard about it so it doesn't add to that number um i would say that you know, we have had a very good track record in selling scripts. I would say we sell a third, maybe 40% of the things that we take wow. out, which is pretty great. Yeah. Things that we know we're going to sell, sure. right? Like there's things, you know, where we do it and, and we know like like there was a script that Jeff Portnoy had in the, on the blacklist um, called Baron Trump. Uh, one of his clients wrote it. Um, and we're, we're never going to sell that one. Like, that's not really that, – that one was written to kind of get attention to get in the blacklist, you know, to show off the, the writer's, you know, talent. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we have a good track record. And one of the reasons for that, I guess there's a few reasons. A, we just work really hard on quality and making sure the script is as good as possible. But I would think the even more important thing is we're very targeted about what – the. Th if we're going to take out something, we're going to try to sell it, what that thing is. And I would say there's really two things that sell nowadays the most. Um, there are exceptions to this always, as there are exceptions to anything. But mm -hmm. these are the primary movers. Um, big budget, things that can become big budget franchises, which, by the way, is like a home run swing. Um, so Infinite would be a great example of that. That's a concept that people got very quickly and that felt like, yeah, that could be you know, a big movie with a big movie star um, or low budget horror thriller stuff. So I would say Eli is an example of that. 1031 is an example of that. Um, you know, projects I'm not involved with, uh, such as The Shallows is a perfect example of that. Um, 
you know, there's this thing getting made called Shut In that Melanie De Toast wrote. That's a perfect example of that. Things that can be done for a limited budget. People have a very clear, clear path to production. I would say, um, what's that Crocodile movie from last year that Alexander Aja did? Really, it's really good. Um, it was like Tarantino's favorite movie. I'm blanking on it. I'm sure someone's yelling it at their, at their <laughs> iPhone right now. But um, that is a great example of Crawl. That's a great example of, of things that sell. Um, and those things probably sell even more than anything because they can make, be ma- so when you, when you make a move, when you take out a screenplay and it can be made for below 10 million, below 5 million, mm-hmm. um, and it has a really amazing concept. Cause I get a lot of emails, of course, people are like, I have a horror film. It all takes place in one house. It can be made really cheaply. It is about a family and someone is trying to kill them. And it's like, well, you're not wrong. Yeah, that could be made cheaply, but why would it be made? Because <laughs> it feels like every single thing I've ever heard about in one, in one, you know, ever, you know, like, right. oh boy, how exciting. The thing about 1031 or Eli or, you know, Crawl or, um, you know, other, other low budget shut in, et cetera, is that not only can they be made inexpensively, they're also fantastic concepts that feel inherently, oh, I've got to see that. Right. You know, I've got to see that. So the concept for 1031, because it's on the blacklist and kind of people are aware of it, I'll just kind of give it, which is you have uh, a main character who is um, a woman in her early 20s. Um, and she takes her niece and nephew out trick-or-treating on the block that they live on, get around the entire block, go home. So just the single block. And she's opening up their candy, kind of steal a piece for herself, finds a note inside, written inside the wrapper of one of the pieces of candy, that says, please help me, kidnapped, going to kill me. Mm. And so A, she has to figure out, is it real? And then B, if it is, which house on their block that they live on is a killer living in? And so it feels like very much in the vein of, I would say, Rear Window, Disturbia, Halloween. Like Um, Cellular from a few years back? Maybe a little bit less because that's that was a movie you're kind of running around a lot. That's true. But yeah, there's aspects of that phone. You know, there is a slight aspect of that to some degree. Right. Um. But you know, and there's also an element of like she's lived on this block her whole life. So who of her neighbors, who she's known for most of her life, oh. could potentially be not what they appear necessarily. Right. Right. Um. And so that felt really the kind of thing that you could sell pretty quickly, and something that that does speak to like larger concerns. Right. Um. So, you know, that that's the kind of stuff. So it's not enough to be like, oh, it can be made cheaply. That's not a no one. No one's driven by it can be made cheaply. <laughs> what they're driven by. It's a great concept. That's a first thing. Mm-hmm. And then it can be made cheaply. Sure. Because if you take out something like 1031, we had a really good feeling about it when we took it. Because a, we thought it was a great concept. B, it was a great script. Um, and we also felt like there was a lot of homes for it, you know? Yes, there was all the regular studios, all, almost all of which make horror. There's the streamers. Um, but, and, you know, we ended, we ended up at one of those, you know, kind of majors, MGM, via Orion. But, you know, we also could have gone in, there's a financier that could go make that for $3 million or something. Sure. There's a lot of different options for how it could get done. And so... Um, and I think a lot of people are like, well, I'll just come up with a horror movie idea. And, and you know, I, have, I do have clients who are like, I don't really like horror movies, but I wrote this thing because it seems like they're selling like hotcakes. Uh, I would say that if you don't love horror, you probably shouldn't be writing horror um, because if you don't love horror, you're not going to know all the stuff that's been done. And horror is a very difficult genre because so much has been done. So people are very demanding about the concept has to feel fresh, sure. you know, it certainly, or it has to feel like, you know, 1031 
is fresh, but it also feels like it links back to things you've seen before. The rear windows, the Disturbias, the Halloweens, Halloween, yeah. etc. But it's it's a it's its own unique spin on that, mm-hmm. you know? Um just like Eli was a haunted house movie, but the spin on it was what if you what if you what if staying in the house would kill you, but so would leaving the house, you know? I and I would argue, you know, that David Churchillow, the original writer on it, and myself always saw it was a coming of age movie to some degree, you know? Right. Um, albeit in the world of a haunted house movie um and so that is really important you can't just be like oh well there's a house and there's some ghosts and the ghosts are mean you know or whatever you know <laughs> right and i do just see people being like yeah then there's a killer and it's 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 not enough and and the executives and people in the horror world are very demanding because they're like i feel like i've seen it before right many times probably yeah and yeah. so i wouldn't say if you're hearing this you're like oh i'll just go write a horror movie how hard could it be Trust me that there are just as many horror scripts, if not more, taken out as anything else. So, therefore, if you want to sell something and eventually get it made, obviously, it needs to feel really unique. That concept, that original pitch has to be like, oh, I haven't quite seen that before. Sometimes people are like, hey, I have a script and it's just like Don't Breathe or it's just like Halloween. So, therefore, it'll mm-hmm. sell. That's not a good comp. It's right. not. I did it just like this, but with a different title. That doesn't get anyone excited. What it needs to feel like is it, it's 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 the vein of this, but it's a very different spin. You've never quite seen the story from this point of view, right? Um, and so, yeah, and then yeah, and look, by, and then the bar for something like Infinite, the bar for a franchise thing, it's even higher because it really has to feel. Because most of the people listening to this podcast, they're not going to be able to option like the bestseller or something like that sure. that becomes a franchise. They can option Harry Potter or that whatever. It has to be like. Like I would give The Matrix is one of the perfect examples. That is not based on anything. I mean, look, it's inspired by a lot of things, but mm-hmm. it's not based exactly on anything. And that was a, became a massive franchise. That now, by the way, they're rebooting and turning it to another, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But um, that it has to be that interesting and that unique um, in order to get done because it's getting people to spend $5 million. Because by the way, if you make a movie for, let's call it $5 million, not the studio. I guess the studios do kind of do that with Blumhouse. But if you make it like a five million dollar movie, it doesn't just cost five million dollars. What it costs actually is you're going to end up at a minimum spending fifteen to twenty five million dollars on a on a marketing spend for that. So like let's say something like Black Christmas. I don't know the budget on that, but let's call it five just for argument's sake. It mm-hmm. might have been more. I imagine it probably wasn't more than ten, but like let's call it five. I think there's a pretty decent marketing spend on that. Let's call it $20 million. Mm-hmm. So that means that the whole cost for the whole thing was 25. I'm probably undercutting. It's probably higher than that. But let's just say it's 25 for argument's sake. They don't just have to make $25 million. They have to make approximately $50 million or more because when you take something to the theaters, the studios don't get all the money. They usually get about 50%, maybe 60% the first weekend, 50% the second weekend. 40% that these deals are all negotiated on mm-hmm. a on a packaging package kind of basis or a slate kind of basis. Um, but let's call it roughly. So in order to make $25 million, you actually have to make $50 million at the right. box office. Um, and different China, for example, I think you only get 25% of any money you get there. So when you see like, oh, this movie made $100 million in China, what it really means is a studio made $25 million. Right, right. And, um, you know, whereas I think in North America, it's more like a 50% rate. Mm-hmm. So when we made $100 million, the studio really made 50%. Um, and so, you know, even for a low budget $5 million movie, you're looking at a marketing spend of 
roughly 15 to 20 to even get some kind of awareness, sometimes higher, you know? Now, and, and for the bigger budget movies, for something like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a big budget movie that came out recently. But, you know, for a big budget movie, let's say it's a $100 million movie, they're probably going to spend closer to 40 to 50 mm-hmm. to market that thing. So let's say it's a 50. So that means for a $100 million movie, there's a $50 million marketing spend. That means they need to make 300 Right. And if a hundred of that money eventually comes from China, they didn't really make a hundred. They made 25. Right. And so all this is to say that people are like, well, I have a cheap movie, even a cheap movie, even a million dollar movie requires, you know, more, the marketing spend is going to be more than the budget of the film. Sure. Uh, there's no movie where the marketing spend was less than, well, sorry, that's not true. There are movies where the marketing spend was less than the budget of the film, but those are usually hundred million dollar movies. You right. know, the marketing spend. There's no real marketing spend that is l- less than ten million dollars. I would really say. I mean, maybe some people are really, really maybe a twenty four is very calculated about doing things, but those are rarer exceptions. I would say. Right. Um, most movies cost between five to ten million dollars to market, um, and in a five million dollar market uh, marketing budget, unless you spend it really judiciously, the majority of people will have no idea it even existed. Right. So, anyways, that's just something to think about when people are like, "I have this cheap horror movie." Well, is the con the concept almost has to do the marketing for you? Did right, you hear about right, that right, right. movie like Crawl, which I don't think, unfortunately, was as successful as it could have been. Although I do believe it was a success and it's a great movie. But you know, Crawl was like, "Oh, that's the alligator movie. Oh, that's that movie. Don't breathe. That's the movie where this. Do you know what I'm saying? It's all in the house." Sure. Or, you know, uh, um, Bird Box, that's a movie where they can't see. Okay, Quiet Place, that's a movie where you can't hear. Right, right, Or you right. can't make noise, rather, you know? And so a great concept is, I would say it's part of the marketing spend in a weird way, you right. know? So people are very um, demanding of that concept. And that's one of the reasons I think Bellevue has had some success is we're very targeted in working with our writers with saying, hey, I don't know that this is different enough to really sell. And we try not to, if they really want to, they really want to write something like they can do whatever they want. Like they're not our employees, you know, just like sure. we're not their employees necessarily. You know, we work together. Uh, I, we don't get paid till they get paid. But, um, you know, we try to steer them towards things that feel like they could sell. And what they could sell means things that feel original, feel things that feel interesting, things that when I call up an executive, they don't say, oh, fine. They say, oh, wow, that sounds cool. I'd love to read that. Right. That feels like a fresh take on something. I have a list on my computer, and what it is are things that have been really popular over the ages. Like five, ten years ago, Robin Hood was on there. You right. know? And right. in fact, I had one of the Robin Hood projects at Warner Brothers. I was producer on that you know, because it felt like the time was right for a Robin Hood movie, or at least one had been made for a while, and then they made one. Um, that wasn't mine. Um, and so maybe not for another minute, but like you could put Sherlock Holmes on that list like 15 years ago, right. you know? So what are the things, what are the public, either public domain characters as in Robin Hood or King Arthur or Sherlock Holmes is exactly public domain. It's kind of in a little bit of a gray area, but like, you know, what is a historical event that we haven't quite seen for a minute, you know? Right. Um, so there's something I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about, which I will not tell you about but hopefully we can talk about it on our next podcast sure. after we've taken it out, that is based on a very well-known historical event that hasn't been made into a movie for about a decade or so. Oh. So I'm like, oh, okay, that feels like something you know, we can do. You know, That feels interesting. I, and also the, w- the point of view we're doing it from, I've never seen it told from that point of view before, which is crazy because it's a really interesting point of view. It feels like a natural place to start. You know, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, so that the a this is kind of the things that are selling in the world and also that's one of the reasons why we've had some success in the future marketplaces being smart about but yeah it's it's as hard as it's ever actually that's not true it's not as hard as it's ever been i would say 
right after the strike in 08 was as hard right, as, it was, right, right. as it ever was. But it's not easy. Sure. It's not easy, definitely. People are demanding. Yeah. Um, going back to <clears throat> the projects that you're working on, and as a producer mm-hmm. for clients' work, and we've had the discussion on the podcast many times before. Yes. Uh, producer versus manager. Yep. As the same role, because agents obviously can't. They're licensed by the state, so they cannot. <coughs> Which is and, and there are many managers who are great managers mm-hmm. and who have I wouldn't say many. There are some managers out there who are great managers who have no interest in being a producer. There's there are, a few, but not many. <laughs> there's, exactly. There's not that many. And I can explain why. Yeah. yeah. And then there's many managers who told who do both. Who do both. And then there's a lot of managers who or are producers managers who in, happen to manage. Right, who are manager in name only. They're really producers, and they run... My, my joke is there's two farm. kinds of managers. Yeah. There are managers who occasionally produce, and there's producers who occasionally manage. Right. Right? And that's a joke and an oversimplification, but there's a level of truth in it. So let's talk a little bit about, A, how I approach it. Sure. Which we've talked about before, but always bears repeating. Yeah. Um, B, why the industry is tr- trending that way, um, and also just how people approach it. So first off, I have a pretty straightforward rule, which is if I bring the concept to a client or I bring the project to a client in terms of I optioned a screenplay, a book, whatever. Like you did with Infinite. Absolutely. So right. Infinite, I optioned the book, brought it to Ian. Uh, Eli was an original idea that I brought to David Churchillo, and he brought another element to it, and that became the movie that it was. To be fair, that was before I was a manager. Um, Blonde Ambition, That I brought the idea of Madonna and Jelly Beans to my wife, mm-hmm. um, Elise, Elise, to write. Yeah. Amazingly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I brought it recently, I brought her uh, a couple years ago, we read on our honeymoon, this article <laughs> about K-pop uh, to her, which she loved. We brought it to Scooter Braun's company and then Epic Magazine had the article, so we partnered up with them and we sold that to Fox and now things, good things are going with that. I won't go into detail on that one, but we're really excited about that project. Um, you know, so there's there's a clear demarcation point on that. I would say there are, to be fair, there is one project I'm working on right now that was another cl- a client's idea, but we spent a year reshaping it, really working intensely. And I, and I said, hey, I would love to be involved in this. Or that, And he's like, you know, the client was like, I'd love that, you know, because mm-hmm. you've really been all the way through that. And that's the only time, I, one of the only times, there was another time where I really reshaped something, spent a year on it, taking it from one thing to really another thing. But I, I did, I said, hey, this is what I'd like to do. Are you comfortable with that or not? And, you know, some people are like, well, you know, of course they have to say that or whatever. But, you know, for me, the, the relationship with the client is paramount. And right. I, you know, that was a scenario where I felt I'd earned my place on that. And look, there's things like my client, Chris Devlin, wrote a script called Cobweb that we sold a couple years ago. Um, and, you know, a lot of clients, some managers who I've spoken to are like, well, if you do any notes on a script, you should be a producer because you did work on it. But I, that's not how I personally feel. People mm-hmm. can differ in their approaches on that. Um, but that's just how I feel. And so, you know, something like Chris, I, you know, that was, you know, I gave notes on it, but it was really him and it, it really came from him. And, and I, I did, I know when I really reshaped something and spent a year on it and Chris, I gave him notes on a few different drafts of that, but it's, it's really Chris. And so he took it out and got amazing producers in vertigo and, and, and point great pictures. Um, and you know, that that's moving forward at Lionsgate, really excited about that. And I didn't go on to produce, didn't I, because that's not, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I didn't think, you know, I had earned my place there, you know, and I always like to be like, well, here's how I became involved in the project, you know, and 95, 99% of the time it's, it's because I brought the idea to a client. So let's talk a little bit about 
why the industry is trending that way. And this is a pretty easy, easy math to figure out. If a client has a script that sells for a million dollars, I get a hundred thousand dollars, right? Which is great. Sure. But most managers producing fees are look i've had producing fees less than a hundred thousand dollars but that was because the movie was a relatively low budget movie and by the way if they're buying your screenplay for a million dollars the movie's not going to be a low budget one because the uh upfront costs for the script alone are so expensive that they would be a third of the budget or something so um so like if a management company as a client that sells it for a million dollars to get a hundred thousand great but their producing fee for that movie would probably be close like 250 500 if you're like anonymous content it's probably a couple million dollars or something like that mm-hmm. so in their head they lose money in that sense um theoretically and that's not by the way it's a purely financially motivated decision um and i'm not saying that's why like anonymous would do it or whatever i'm just saying that's a mathematical thing i think a lot of people are looking at this and being like wait all this money's why am I not producing this? Because I gave notes or I did this or I found the writer and I introduced them to this or, mm-hmm. you know, we're the th- I introduced them to a director that's on the project. And you could argue that's producing. That's fair. You know, um, I don't, you know, it's not a situation that I've been involved in. I haven't introduced a director client onto a project necessarily. Um, so, you know, I, I just have my definition of how I do things. But I think, you know, in a time when there's a lot of overhead and a time when it's harder to get movies made, I think a lot of managers are like, why am I not producing every single thing my clients are taking out? Because if one in 10 of those get made, I'll probably make as much money as I'm making from those 10 things selling. Sure. You know, and that's a purely a financial decision. Um, and then, you know, then a lot of people are like, well, I gave notes. I did this, I did that, you know, and everyone has their own different definition of, of what, you know, if you ask someone like, what's a, what's a good marriage? What's a good, what's love? What does this look like? Everyone has their own definition. Everyone's their own definition of what a producer should, what should, should do and, and, and how and what makes a producer. I have my own personal definition. Right. Uh, and that's what I operate from is a level of comfort. And even then, like I said, there have been times when I've been like, you know what, even though I didn't originate this idea or, or option this thing, a book, this is something where I do feel like that. And so that's happened once or twice. So I, if that may, I don't, I don't feel like it makes me a hypocrite, at least because I'm owning it. But like some people could say it does, I guess. But um, but yeah, that's you know that, that is why the industry I think is trending that way. And I would say to people who are consi- it's weird. It's like a lot of people don't have managers, don't have representation, have never sold anything, are super obsessed with this question, um, which is it's not wrong to think about it. But it's also like, is it really the most important thing in the entire world right. to really obsess about? There are larger questions about your representative you should have, but it is something to, to, to be – if it's a concern of yours, you should be upfront with them about it and say what you want that relationship to look like. And if you're, I, if you're like, I don't think just giving notes is enough for you to be a producer, then you should say that up front to them. Um, and they may feel differently or they may agree with you. Um, so if you feel it's a concern, you can always raise it. Um, and there are big concerns where managers coming out of producers, I've heard anecdotally, have not helped the project. Um, so that obviously can happen. But to me, it's kind of like people being like, I'm not moving to Los Angeles because an earthquake could happen at any moment. Yeah, it, it could, <laughs> right. but it probably won't, you know? And so the chances of a manager sinking your project um, or that being the reason your thing doesn't sell, it could definitely happen, but it's probably not the number one reason it would happen. Right. It'd be pretty low on the list, I would say. There's probably, you know, the first thing would be like, it feels, your script feels, the biggest pass I give to things are it didn't feel, um, 
unique enough to stand out in the marketplace. And that's probably why it's happening. But anyways, it is a valid concern for people. I just don't know. It's it necessarily the, as with many concerns in our modern life, I don't know that the concern, it's necessarily the weight of people, like people give to it is, is justified, in my opinion. Right. And I think like with signing, um, uh, you know, uh, agreements to, you know, when you have your material read, uh, releases, just, releases. Yeah, excuse yeah. me. I'm thinking NDA. <clears throat> like, that's not right. When they sign releases, like people writers sometimes. Uh, oh no! Pre- I'll never sign a release. Right, they get oh my god! You're steal their idea and things oh, like god. that. Oh my god! You know, so it's yeah. a similar thing. That, it's a great way to start a relationship. Right. That you're worried about probably the wrong things at that point. Oh, it's crazy. I've I mean, people, material does get stolen, bet, but it's not as it's frequent. It happens. As you think. Oh my god! It just right. like. I had an idea for a Robin Hood and someone said to us, oh my God, they stole it. No, they didn't steal it. Right. It's just, I mean, never this Robin Hood's out there in the world, but like the week we took out uh, Ian Shore's Christus back, two weeks before that, another Kenomachi Christus back went out. Right. It's, you know, it's like, and when we took out our K-pop project, there were other projects set in the world of K-pop out there. Right. Ours was just the most awesome. Well, plus if, if a manager w- loved your concept mm-hmm. or script enough to quote unquote steal it, why wouldn't they sign you? It's the craziest. And then have to write it themselves or bring in another. I've writer. seen scenarios where a manager knew someone else, another client, some other thing. I won't, I'm not going to tell this around the record. I've seen scenarios where a manager knew something else was going on and held that information back for whatever reason. Right. But I've almost never seen someone steal what I would personally quantify as stealing an idea. Sure. Uh, I've seen their clients get in. I've seen some weird stuff happen. By the way, so small that I can think of the one one time really. Right. And I've been in this business for over 20 years. Um, the reality is – so take like Lori Ashmore, right? So Lori has a script called 1031 and has a concept in there that I think is great. You know, I think the script is, is has some interesting stuff in it, but it's not – necessarily the permutation that I think will sell. And so I optioned it and then I went and had other people work on it, right? I didn't just, I could have just been like, oh, I'm going to steal this idea. Ha ha ha. But no, like number one, that opens up a whole like lawsuit or whatever. And it's like, number one, it's immoral, ethical, whatever. Sure. But also like, it just opens me up from a legal point of view and that's just a dumb business to do. So instead I reached out to Lori, I optioned it from her you know, got people to work on it. And when the script went out, her name was on the cover page and she is involved as a co-producer. And like, why wouldn't I do that? You know, and by the way, if you have a great idea, we could probably sell it. And hopefully I can work with you on it and we get it to a great place. You know, like right. it's, it, you're completely right. That's a real concern of people. And I have people like, well, I will not sign your release. I'm like, well, great, good luck, you know? Right. Cause like, by the way, if I was to sign you, and you would – people like your script, you know what you do? You do what we call the water bottle tour where you go and you meet a bunch of executives and say, what else are you working on? You're like, well, I can't tell you that. Right. Well, no, you'll steal it. Oh, great. That's a great way to build Thanks relationships. Yeah. It's like ideas are cheap. Execution is everything. Right. You know? And that doesn't mean – like I have that idea that I, we were talking about that I'm not going to bring up on the podcast. That's based, but that's based on a public domain thing. Right. That's a real historical event that's out there in the world. And so – I just we have a particular take on it that I'm really excited about, and yeah, that's just you know I, I don't I'm not like oh someone's going to steal the idea, but I'm like I don't need to put it out there in the world until we've taken it out, right? You know, there's no upside to that necessarily. Um, so yeah, it's yeah that that you're completely right that sometimes people get hung up on the wrong things and they ignore the most important things, and the most important thing is 
does the representative, do I align with their tastes? Do I feel heard? Do I trust them? And it's a weird thing where the people who have had the least experience, sometimes the people who are the most difficult and the most opinionated and the most stubborn. And, it, and it's also like, well, maybe that's why you're not successful is right. because you are so rigorous in in that kind of stuff. And what you really need to be like, do I trust this person? Do I want to hear their opinions? If you, if you don't want to hear your representation's notes, either A, there's something wrong with you because you refuse to hear anyone's notes, or if those notes are so adverse to you that they, you think they're making the script wrong, then you shouldn't be represented by this person because th- your tastes don't align. Right. Um, speaking of representation, your brand new digs here. Mm-hmm. Uh, many in the unnamed location. In the unnamed top secret underground bunker. Uh, things have been going great. And you had mentioned that your your the amount of queries and interest you've uh, yes. had in the uh, in your company. I wake up to a lot more queries than I used to. Three times the amount you used to get. I get a lot of queries, Kevin, as I think I was telling you before, yeah. that consist of, do you accept query letters? Right. <laughs> Which I do not respond to because it's a query letter about accepting query letters. And right. It is not something I feel the need to respond to. And right. so if you're querying me about that, you could probably save yourself some time and do a modicum of research on it. Absolutely. It's almost like we were talking about earlier, mm. like going up to someone and asking for a date, saying, hey, do you accept people coming up and asking you for a date? Mm. And, and if and, so, what would yeah, be the best way to yeah, do what's so? the process for that? Yeah. And when, Let when, me write down some notes so you can return <laughs> at a later date. Um, and speaking of queries, uh, I've got some questions here that we get frequently. Uh, and speaking of, of queries, we've gone over it a lot. <clears> and it's something that uh, we have talked about, but it's still important and something that people – ask a lot um things such as uh what is heat what, what is he- yeah everyone says oh they're looking for heat a- is a great movie right which is, is why bank robbers man maybe not the best thing to do <laughs> or if we're going back further a burt reynolds movie oh i didn't see that one. written by bill goldman okay which to be fair i have not seen uh what is heat heat is it's so funny. Like people are like, what is heat? It's like if you're asking what heat is, you don't got it. Right. You know. Sure. It's like how do make what is cool? How are people cool? <laughs> well, you're not. That right. unfortunately, by mere virtue of interest in trying to be cool, you right. are therefore not cool. Heat is. But for those who don't have it now, what is it? it? And how do they get? How do I get some how heat? How do they get the heat? Look, uh, let me talk about my beloved, beautiful, brilliant wife, sure, uh, Elise. And because she very much was in a situation where she became a hot writer. I would say she still is. Yeah. But it was a very, there was a very clear period where she was, and it, it was obvious. So my wife, who's incredibly talented, started working on Blonde Ambition. It took her two years, just so everyone knows good things take time. And she'd been an assistant um, to Alexander, and Alex, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu on Birdman. She'd been an assistant at Universal. She'd been an assistant at Anonymous Content. She'd been an assistant on a fantastic TV show called Fresh Off the Boat mm-hmm. for an amazing writer called Courtney Kang and worked with Nanachika Khan there. And so learned from all these experiences, all these great people. And um, so, and she'd been working on our screenplay and it was an idea she and I had been talking about for a while. I know exactly where we first discussed it. Uh, when I was at NYU, uh, a really talented guy called Jelly Bean Benitez had come in to my classroom and talked about early on working with Madonna and also dating her. This is back in 2001, to give you an idea. And Elise and I were in a restaurant uh, years later, and 
I was, we were talking about interesting people. And I was like, oh, Madonna's always been interesting. I heard this one story about her, but that's all I knew. And then Elise went and did a year's worth of research and knew this subject cold. And then we broke an outline together and she wrote an amazing script. And that script got taken out in September of 2016. I remember very specifically. And it was a story about, if people aren't familiar, it was the script Blonde Ambition. It was about the early days of Madonna and her struggle in a misogynist, uh, industry in the music industry in the sure. 1980s at a relatively misogynist time um, to become a successful female pop star when there weren't very many models for that and to maintain a great deal of control over her industry and her relationship somewhat star is born relationship albeit with no one dying uh, with <laughs> jelly bean Benitez, where he was a big star got to know her and then she eclipsed him essentially um, and so just to recap, it was a female-driven story set in the music industry with a lot of music in it, right? And around that time, female-driven stories really started to take off. I think it was around the time that the that all the stuff, the Me Too kind of, I don't know want to call it a movement or the moment or whatever you want to call it, was kind of crystallizing. Um, and people were becoming more aware of the ways that women were sexually harassed and sexually assaulted and the misogyny, inherent systematic misogyny. And so here was a screenplay, which, by the way, we've been working on for two years. And we were thinking about taking it out in 2015, but it just wasn't ready yet. Um, so we ended up you know, waiting to get it right and take it in 2016. And we just managed to hit the moment perfectly, essentially. Not intent. We did. There were people might, might have thought, oh, you just wrote that in three months. And like, because it was so perfectly, it was complete luck. And so it really spoke to a script that spoke to a woman, a tr female tr pioneered trailblazer trying to make her mark in a male-driven industry, which is, by the way, mostly still male-driven, you know, as you can still tell, especially mm -hmm. in the country music sector, um, to, de to this date. And so people are like, wow, this really speaks to the current moment. Also, music movies were becoming massive, massive at the time, you know, um, and have only since gone on with, like, Bohemian Rhapsody, Star is Born, La La Land, um, uh, Rocketman, a few other that like were starting to really hit at that time. Um, and so she took the screenplay out. We got amazing producers on board, um, particularly Mike DeLuca. Um, we got a great, all the, almost all the agencies in town wanted to sign her and we took it out and it became, and people loved it so much. It became number one script on the blacklist. And so she became a quote unquote hot writer. By the way, she didn't quit her day job for like another, like, from when we took it out to September, I don't think she quit her day job till April. So that gives you an idea, sure. by the way, that like, you're not like, all right, I'm never on the blacklist. I'm out, guys. Mm -hmm. The money is about to flow. And she, we waited until she got her the first job and also we were able to sell uh, Option Blonde Ambition to set a Blonde Ambition over at Universal. Um, and so we knew that, okay, she, she's going to be okay. Um, so she became a hot writer. Why was she a hot writer? Well, A, she's super talented. B, she was never on the blacklist. But also, she'd written a screenplay um, about the music industry. About, and it was a music-based movie at a time when music-based movies were really popular. And, and by the way, only continued to grow in popular. She'd written a screenplay that was female-driven at a time when female-driven projects were starting to like really finally really crank up and get people like, oh, I guess we should A, uh, do more female-driven projects, and B, we should hire women to write them revolutionary idea um and also i would say the thing i would also speak the reason i talked about her background is that my wife had worked anonymous she'd worked for an incredibly famous and talented director she'd worked at a studio for really incredible and smart executives um you know she had worked under incredible writers at fresh so she knew she'd worked at a, a high level management company 
for a high-level director, for high-level executives, for high-level writers. And so she knew how to talk to all these people. And she'd learned little things from all these people. So when she went and started talking to directors, actors, um, showrunners, uh, executives, studio executives, production executives, she knew how to speak to them all because she had this background of experience and she knew how to speak executive, as it were, especially executive, right? Um, you know, and so that was really helpful in terms of, a, she hit the zeitgeist in terms of the moment, but also she was able to capitalize on that because of, of a career she built up over four or five years of working in the industry and kind of gaining relationships and knowledge, essentially. And so, A, the subject matter hit, her screenplay was of the moment, but also she was able, people would meet Elise and be like, wow, you know, she's great. She's I want to work with her. She's really smart. She's very collaborative, all that kind of stuff. She, she um did a, her next kind of proper assignment, full assignment, where she was the first writer in. She had this script called Queens of the Stone Age for Sony, for fantastic producers, uh, for Dakota Johnson, uh, you know, for uh, great executives over at Sony. Um, and she did a great job at it. That script ended up in the, on the blacklist in 2018. Um, and everyone who worked with her um, had great things to say about her. And I think that was the next thing that could have really solidified. Be like, oh, you didn't just write a great spec. You also were able to work within the system. And so people are like, oh, you've proven yourself there. And so she's got, you know, we just announced another Sony project that she's doing called Murder on the Dance Floor for this amazing, iconic choreographer that she's, that she's and she's working with great producers. She's working with um, Mark Platt and Adam Siegel, you know, a little movie called La La Land right, and right. a lot of other great music-based movies. Um, and by the way, the same executives over at, over at Sony, you know, so they were really happy, they repeat business. And so everyone looks at it and says, oh, wow, this is someone who, A, wrote a great spec that was acclaimed of the moment. She writes female-driven stuff. She writes music-driven stuff. She can write other stuff, by the way. But, like, it really felt like, oh, that kind of crystallized. And so I think it really, you can't, it's like being cool. You can't, like, aim to be hot. But what I would say is when that moment hits, the way you can, like, multiply it, because, like, Elise would say, I would say, is a hotter writer today than she was when she'd just been number one on the blacklist. And the reason for that is that she's proven herself to work within the studio system, to be a collaborative writer, to be a thoughtful writer, to be able to take notes, but also bring her own opinion to things, to be able to write commercial work, um, and then have a sense, you know, we took out a K-pop project when k-pop was just starting to be huge and by the way we sat down with some places and they're like yeah we don't want to do a k-pop movie because that's just a fad just a fad right just and, and of course it, it's gone on to prove that it, it is not a fad sure you know um and but we were on the early days of that relatively speaking when we mm -hmm. first took the project out you know and so she obviously is aware and plugged into the zeitgeist and so what i would say is let's say you sell us back or you know something cool happens in your career then you want to be the person who people are like, I'm, I just met so-and-so. What a great person. I want to work with that person. And then when you work with when they, if and when they do work with you, you deliver on that. If you wrote a great spec, write another great spec. If you can prove yourself consistently, that is hot. Like I would say one of the hottest writers in the world right now is Michael Green. And Michael, if you look at Michael Green's IMDb page, it's astonishing. The amount of success he's had in a number of years. I want to grab my phone. Because Michael Green is not some guy who just wrote a spec yesterday. Michael Green has been working. This is a good example, by the way, of like how the career kind of goes, is he's been working in television for, I want to say since the early 90s. Um, and I think it's a good example of how long it can take 
too. So Michael, I'm just going to Michael Green's, also he's phenomenal. He wrote an episode of Sex and the City in 1998. He wrote an episode of Cupid, the original, not the reboot, in 1998. He was in Smallville in the, in the early 2000s. And so he doesn't, I'm kind of skimming here, so, but his first credit, his first produced credit is Green Lantern 2011, which, by the way, not incredibly successful commercially successful movie but clearly people liked working with him because then he is logan in 2017 alien covenant in 2017 uh blade runner 2049 in 2017 murder in the orient express in 2017 that's four credits in one year right and he has jungle cruise call the nile death in the call the wild death in the nile coming up three credits i think in 2020. So and so that's someone, by the way, has been around since the late 90s. But right. why is he hot now? He's hot now because he's a really talented writer and he delivers and people enjoy working with him. And that's hot. You know, it's not because some crazy backstory or whatever. It's because he's a fantastic writer and people really, really like working with him and they have good experiences with him. And so that's what heat is. It's not like... You know, it's it's not like oh, I sold one spec. Suddenly, I'm I'm hot. It just it doesn't work that way. It's consistency, mm-hmm. in my personal opinion. Sure. Um, you had mentioned uh, the the Me Too movement and and that mm-hmm. whole thing as part of the whole blonde ambition, uh, the the impetus towards the it success was, of. Yeah, blonde. I think it, not, I, not to uh, motivate your writing of it, but the the way in the trajectory. Uh, I, I personally think that had something to do sure. with it because it was a screenplay about women right. triumphing over misogyny and, and institutionalized sexism right. at a time when women – was coming out how women had to struggle with misogyny and institutionalism. Right. No, absolutely. It was just a lucky kind of zeitgeist. Thing. Yeah. But I wanted to bring up something that uh, that I know is talked about a lot in terms of minority writers and mm-hmm. female writers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's It's brought up a lot that – a lot of, of reps and a lot of executives and a lot of different people um, will tell writers uh, that, you know, basically a majority of screenwriters and TV <clears throat> writers rooms, you know, working writers are still primarily, you know, in terms of majority, mm-hmm. male and white. Yes. Um, and yet a lot of male writers are told that they can't be signed, their work won't be, you know, I really can't hire mm-hmm. you for whatever reason because we're looking for yeah, absolutely. minority I just talked about this yesterday writers. with the final draft guys. Yeah. Um, and is that honestly true in a sense of, like, I would love to hire you, but I can't because I need to hire somebody else? Is, or is it more of a soft pass? Is it, Let me, does it depend? Yeah, so let's talk about the, are, you the... know, Are they just trying to balance out their crews? Yeah, let's because, talk a little yeah. bit about why that situation Because it's never easy to, to no. sign a writer. It's never easy no. to sell something, no. whether they're white or purple or black. So, I mean, what happens whatever. is that, you know, for, for decades, it's sure. mo- TV writers' rooms have been mostly white and male. Right. Um, and not very diverse and not very female. Um, and people suddenly there was an awakening right. within the last few years. Like, oh yeah, we should probably do that. We should probably have more people of color, more women, you know, in these writers' rooms. But because there had historically not been a lot of them, it's not like you can be like just make someone a co-executive producer, or at least they don't feel comfortable doing so, right? Sure. So where does everyone have to stop? Everyone has to start at the bottom. Right. And so that's a situation that they've come to of like, well, we're going to diversify our writer's room, but 
there's not enough writers of color or female driven female sorry female writers at, you know in the mid level or the upper tier realms by the way whether that's true or not you know but that's certainly the institutional word out there right. and so they're like well if we're going to do it I guess we'll have to hire the staff writers you know which is tricky in so many levels because tv is a very not all writers rooms but some are very um hierarchy based world so it's a little tricky to be the person of color or the women in the room uh and they're like and 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 they're like doing something you know and you have a comment to say but you're also the person who technically has is a lowest ranking member in the room so it's mm -hmm. just a very tricky work and that's kind of why it is right now is there's a, there is a real impetus to diversify the the tv landscape um and 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 so right now we're kind of in this what I would call a growing pain situation where because so many upper level and mid-level writers are white male and there just aren't enough people they're like, Oh, we'll start from the bottom. And as a result, you know, what they're saying out there is like, Hey, you know, that's what we're focused on. And by the way, there are times when white, white males are still hired. Do you know what I'm saying? I have a client sure. who got hired. And so it's not, but that's kind of it's like this weird thing. And this is probably the same thing. You could look at the Oscars and be like, that's one of the reasons it's like, you know, yeah, there's great stuff out there. It's also like the Academy voting. It's also the fact that so few movies of, you know, with – about – like, you know, there haven't been – Crazy Rich Asians came out and there hasn't been a million movies about – with Asian leads in right. them since, you know. Right. I mean, The Farewell, but that's an independent movie. And, like, we could probably count on one hand. You know, that's one reason I'm very excited about K-pop is that that movie is completely – uh, you know, uh, Korean protagonists, you know, and, and a good chunk we're, you know, figuring out will be, you know, in, in Korean, you know, the same way that Crazy Rich Asians had a good chunk in, um, I don't know if it was Mandarin or Cantonese, right. um, but you know what I'm saying? But there hasn't been some rush, you know, Constance, who's gotten more roles and um, the male lead in that, uh, who I actually love, uh, I forget his name. He's gotten some more roles. Aquafina's gotten some more roles. But it's not like they've been like, you know, Mulan, you know, but like I think Mulan was going to happen regardless. Um, and But, you know, it's not like they've been like, oh, let's go. It hasn't happened. And I think that speaks to, you know, a lot of things that, I, you know, I can speak to just from having heard and listened and done the research. But, you know, you know, it's just, you know, there's, there's just an institutional setup. Um, if you are a white male and you want to write in television, you can still write in television. It's sure. just, you know, it, we're in a, we're in a situation right now where they're looking for diversity, which is not a bad thing. Um, and they're starting in the most cases at the, at, at a low level, you know, but you can still do it. You can still sell things, you know, you can still get staffed. It happens all the time. Um, yeah, that's kind of the situation. And so, uh, that's the situation as I see it is like, we're in a situation where there's an impetus to kind of like diversify and, right. and, and because of, because of decades of it not being that way, you know, we're in kind of a, a, a moment, a moment in flux. Does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I just wanted to touch base on it because a lot of times you hear about it, but you don't hear about it sort of explained the reasons behind it and you know, what it actually, um, like I said, you just sometimes hear that, Oh, you know, white male writers say, I can't get a break. They just won't hire me because I'm not a minority. I'm not a woman. So I can't. And sometimes that, you know, like you had mentioned, mm -hmm. it's because of the institutionality of white male upper levels mm -hmm. they, and they want to bring diversity in. 
they have to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's oftentimes... And unfortunately, you know, it'd be right. awesome people are like, hey, you're really talented. I'm bringing you on a co-EP level. But right. they don't do it, right. you know? Right. And so it's... You you have to, like, work your way up. You have to pay your dues. And right. so five years, ten years from now, maybe it'll... Hopefully, the landscape will look remarkably different. Right. You know? And we won't be like, oh, man, we need to diversify because it will be diverse. Right. That, it's, 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 hard. A, it's a nice ideal. Anyway. Uh, and I hope that it happens that way. Yeah. But it's always hard. Yeah. Always, and I will yeah. say this. So I have a friend, good friend of mine, who used to work here at Bellevue Productions, proud. Uh, I don't know if I call him alumni or whatever, but also one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. He was the MC at my wedding. A guy called David O'Leary, mm-hmm. who um, is, was a white male uh, at the time in his 30s, um, who had, you know, done some stuff. But he, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think he'd ever staffed on a TV show. He'd never sold anything. He writes an amazing pilot uh, about something he was really passionate about, UFOs. He's, if you know anything about David O'Leary, you know he loves UFOs. And he was really passionate about it. And he got it out there. And now it's on the air as Project Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And he's the creator of Project Blue Book. And he was a white male with no, you know, some feature work assignments, but, you know, nothing huge. And he went and got a TV show on the air that's a big hit, you know, and he's the creator of it. And so that happened, you know, and it's, it's just one of those things where, like, you can be like, oh, it's never happening. Then you can point to like 20 examples of when it did happen. Right. You know? And yeah, there's a lot more to be said about this. But to be honest with you, I don't know that I'm necessarily the person to say it. Sure. Yeah. It's just yeah. kind of. But it's an interesting thing to discuss. Right. Yeah. Um, especially because you, it's sort of still unclear if, if that, you know, what you had said is the sole reason, which I think is. There's, never, the main... there's never any one reason for anything. Right. Or if it's oftentimes, if it could be used as a, as a yeah. you know, soft pass as well. There's never you one reason I mean? for anything. It could be. It could be, you know, uh, yeah. I, that the reason I talk about O'Leary is to say that, like, you know, he got a show made. He's sure. a creator, yeah. you know, and that that didn't hinder him, you know. Sure. And I have clients, white male clients, who've gotten staffed on TV shows, right. you know. And so there's no one rule. And if you're saying that's the reason that you can't get success, then it's not the reason. Right. There are factors to all things. Sure. You know, if you you could be like, oh well, I can't get success because I live in nashville or something that's why i'll never sell a feature or get staffed on tv show but then we can point to someone who that very story happened to right you know and like so it's always hard yeah and there's no one reason why anything happens generally you know life is complicated (laughs) right yeah um we're running a little short of time but i wanted to touch base because in the past we had talked about it as well Mm. the wga ata sort of dispute which uh, I guess you had been a little more optimistic than I, I thought. I was a, like a cynical person <laughs> to other people. They're like, it's never going to happen. And I think right. I was like, ah, maybe for a few months, it'll be over by blankety blank. Right. Oh my God. I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, I mean, well, I, well, yeah, I guess there are things to say about things have started to happen. Yeah. I mean, there have been some agencies fairly recently at the time of this recording, uh, you know, which would probably have been a couple of weeks ago. Now that you're listening to it, it's, you know, some mate before it was smaller agency. By the time and, they're listening to, they're like, everything's fine everything's now. So. Well, maybe, and then well, <laughs> probably not. Then probably not. Uh, but now, actually, larger agencies, Gersh and yeah. EPA, are starting to sign the code of conduct with the Writers Guild uh, to get writers yeah. back under their umbrella of representation. Um, and I know for a lot of managers, it's been <clears throat> difficult. Oh, it's in terms been of really hard. You having to take the load that the agents can you twi- would really can take. you do twice as much work but still get paid the same amount? Apparently you can. <laughs> yes, <laughs> apparently you can. And then yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, I'm optimistic. I I suspect 
Paradigm will probably sign the deal. Sure. They're the they're the kind of remaining larger mid tier quote unquote agency um, that doesn't that isn't involved in the lawsuit right. and has not signed. Um, my life is better now. My life will be better if they sign it. And my life is much better now that APA, Kaplan, Stoller, Verve are well, I guess Verve was always back in right. line. Um, Gersh are back involved because I have clients at all those agencies. Sure. Um, and so that's great. And if Paradigm was signed, I have clients there. It'd be great. I'd be really happy. And I'm hoping that's happened soon. My suspicion is that the people involved in the lawsuit, that that won't change anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But who knows? It's possible. Um, there's also the looming potential strike right. in May, which may or may not happen. We don't know. I mean, I was talking to someone and they're like, well, you know, it's not going to happen because someone said it wasn't going to happen. And I'm like... It's my job as a manager to let all my clients know that it could happen. Right. Just like, by the way, I have earthquake insurance. Yeah. <laughs> For all my right. poo-pooing right. right. about earthquakes, I still have earthquake insurance. Right. Um, you know, and a kit in my car in right. case something happens. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's good, very well it could happen. And maybe that's a factor. Maybe some of the larger agencies are waiting to see if a strike happens or doesn't happen. Right. You know? So, you know, that's always a concern. I, I am loath to predict anything. Um given my track record on the subject. <laughs> um, uh, but given the many, many factors, whether it's the, you know, there's a lot of things going on. But right. I will say I'm very happy as, you know, to have the agencies back that are back. It was very, very happy email for me to see that occur. Well, okay. So jumping from the WGA ATA to the potential mm -hmm. WGA strike and saying yes. as a manager, you'd be sort of derelict in your duty if you didn't at least consider the possibility. Yes. And let my happening. clients know that they can consider that right. possibility. What, I guess two questions. What uh, are you advising your current clients? Don't spend all your money. Don't spend all your money. Uh, and two, what would you say to the pre WGA as they call, you know, as they're called now, uh, you know, the aspirants, write your scripts you know, really fast, write your scripts really fast to be ready to what, what, how would an, uh, a strike? Like See, this is interesting. I had a client, writers who I had a WGA signed. client who's not aware of this. Yeah. Uh, here's re it's really simple. Yeah. If a WGA strike happens, nothing can get done. Right. The only thing that can get done is they can continue to shoot, uh, feature films, or TV shows for which scripts have already been written. So let's say you are midway through production on a movie uh, and then the strike happens. You then technically can no longer change, or a writer certainly cannot, change any of the dialogue, any of the structure, anything like that. No writer can be involved in changing anything. Uh, no scripts can get bought or sold. Um, at least, I guess theoretically... You could sell a screenplay. If you're non-WGA, you could sell a screenplay to a non-WGA signatory. Like, let's say there's a producer like, I want to buy your screenplay for $5,000. And you're not in the WGA. You're like, great, you could still do that. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? But like anything, any sales to studios, for the most part, scripted TV shows shut down. Mm -hmm. So maybe they can shoot one more episode or something or pre-written episodes. But really, there's only so long TV shows can go without writers being involved. Sure. Um, but really, the town completely goes into a hiatus while and you know obviously writers will be out there marching on the picket lines um but yeah there's not much for anyone to do at all um you know if you're a pwga writer i mean look we'll probably still be we'll still be reading screenplays and signing clients and developing specs and 
doing stuff like that. Although I think technically no one's supposed to do anything pencils down or, or you know, but like, I, I don't know, you know, but, but we'll are developing their own material. That's still, I don't, I don't know. know. Technically, you're not supposed. To, I don't know. The whole yeah. thing is complicated. But like, certainly, non WJs people can sure. keep, can keep developing specs and stuff like that. But there, no one would take anything out until the strike was over. Right. You know, that would never, ever, ever, ever. I was certainly wouldn't take. I guess if I had a non W, I don't know. I just would you be be in development mode? Sure. Is essentially what would happen. And so yeah, it would shut down everything. But not except for animation. Right. Oh yeah, that's true. But not being. Uh, not neither animation is covered by Yatsi, just to be clear on that front animation is covered by Yatsi, not the wga so pixar movies anything animated would still continue to move forward although actually no i guess no yeah if you were wga where you're working on an animated movie uh yeah you'd you would it would not affect you yeah um but not not that either one of us hopes for a strike but if there were a strike mm. would that do you think again it's all theoretical do you think you would be have more time available ah. to read this is what, I, what I'm getting all the, this, this like, I all hope the, a strike happens that John has more time to read me right. read my script John now that I'm just going to play a lot more Fortnite um <laughs> uh I no, maybe. Although I'm sure every single one of my clients, well, actually, a lot of my clients would be like, okay, well, now that I can't work on my TV show or do whatever, now I am right. You need to write it. I don't know. Probably. The answer is like, I guess. But the also answer is almost every single one of my clients at that point is going to want to start developing a spec, sure. including the clients who were previously staffed on TV because shows. Because they don't have anything to do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's like, I don't know that it's not going to make, I don't know that it would make. I would, if I was anyone, there's, I think there's almost no upside for a strike to almost anyone with sure. the argument that I guess if you're in the WGA and you strike and then eventually like you, you win concessions, then I guess it's been successful, but I don't really know anyone who's like super psyched about it, Sure, you know? And the other thing I would say is people don't know this, but this is funny. I think I retweeted a tweet about this. If you sell a screenplay in September, you would be lucky to see the check by December. Mm-hmm. Okay, because deals take you might sell the deal. I mean, like, we agree we're selling to you for a hundred thousand dollars, yay! And then the actual uh, legal agreement, the long form agreement, takes three to four to five to longer six months to get done. And then the producer's deal also has to be done, done all the underlying rights deals. They're what are called con- conditions precedent, which means you cannot get paid till X or Y is satisfied. So if a strike happened and you sold it, let's say it was over by August and you sold screenplay in September, then you actually wouldn't get any money coming in till December, January, February or whatever. So it would be really difficult in the sense that the tap would get turned off for money and then the money would really start flowing in for a little while just because that's how Hollywood does business. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, the law, the legal deals just take so long. So it would be really difficult in the sense I get TV would would theoretically start back up again um but yeah i don't know it's, it'd be a, it'd be a really really it would have a, a long-term ripple effect right. maybe you know look in terms of i think what the wj is advocating for um are really important issues sure. so I, it's not for me to say whether or not a strike is worth it. it it also depends how the studios counter if they counter in a um they are able to find a compromise or a good compromise that people in wg are satisfied with then yeah great you know right so it's not for me to say whether or not strikes is justified. We're also not at that point yet. No, no, no. But anyone who says there's no chance of a strike is wishful thinking. Sure. Just like there's 
Just say there's no chance of an earthquake. There's <laughs> right. Thinking. Right. There's right. always right. a chance. We just had one a couple of days ago. Yes, we did. Yeah. Not a big one. On that positive note, uh, thank you for coming on again, John. It was great talking to you, as always, and great seeing you. Um, be sure to follow John on Twitter. It's at John Zauzerny. That's J-O-H-N, John. Z-A-O-Z-I-R-N-Y. Do you have any other social media that anyone needs to know about? No. Well, actually, we have a, we have a Bellevue Facebook page, which okay. I which I update I, we actually have also have a Bellevue Twitter, but I rarely ever use it. My right. Twitter is the better one. But if you go to Bellevue's Facebook page uh, and become a fan, yeah. I am pretty good about updating whenever a Bellevue client has a victory, which happens more more and more often these right. days, which is nice. Uh, and then we have our like we our Bellevue productions like new like our actual website. We have like a news thing that update. But yeah, I think the social other than my Twitter my my Twitter, which is yes Bellevue centered, but also writing tips and my random thoughts on survivor uh or whatever um but yeah if you just want to hear about what's what's going on at bellevue the bellevue facebook page is the best one there you go um and as always thank you so much for listening and making us one of your writing procrastination devices (laughs) of choice by listening to the show thank you so much and we'll catch you next time remember keep writing keep writing